Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of every ounce of affection and adoration we can muster. And what we find generally in our hearts is just a lack of passion and desire and willingness to give you that adoration. And so what we need right now as we open your word, as we look at your glory in the pages of Scripture, Father, what we need is you to come and to sovereignly work in our hearts, to get our hearts in a posture to receive your greatness and your majesty, to embrace you as our treasure. Father, to take every ounce of us that is maybe ignorant to how great you are, maybe shaded to how great you are. Maybe we are just unwilling to express that greatness because there's other things that capture our eyes. I pray that you would remove all of those things, every distraction, every barrier to seeing you as you really are, Father, and that you would shine your glory into our hearts. Every single person in this room, every person who can hear my voice, Father, that we would cherish you as our treasure and love you with the kind of love that you deserve. I ask these things in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. All right, if you could open your Bibles to Colossians 2, verses 6, or verse 6, rather. We're going to go through 6 and 7. So Friday afternoon, this Friday afternoon, I'm spending some time with my family on a brief vacation in the Crystal Mountain area. Are you guys familiar with that, Crystal Mountain? gorgeous uh, place. And I've already got my sermon written out. I'm pretty confident about it. Uh, I feel really good, which never happens. And um, then I crack open the book of Colossians just to read it by the pool. And as I'm reading through the section that we're in, I realize that I've written the wrong sermon for this week. Um, And that in order to get to that sermon, we really need to engage another issue beforehand. So I reboot completely and start rewriting uh, from scratch, basically. Um, And and it's because there's something in this text that I want to look at that is foundational. We can't move forward in the book of Colossians unless we see it. Uh, We are getting into a part of this book where Paul is moving from stating declarative sentences, facts, and he's transitioning into imperative sentences, which are commands. Uh, He's told the Colossians who Jesus Christ is, He's told them who they are in Christ, and those are all facts. They're great facts. They're declarative sentences. But what he's going to start doing is he's going to start to shift gears and transition into say what their response should be. Given all that you've seen in this book so far, in the first 35 verses, this is how you should live. And this living is rooted in one of the most profound concepts uh, in human existence, what something, something that Paul refers to as being in Christ. And if you were here with us when we started Risen Hope, about two or three weeks in, we talked about being in Christ. And we talked about the fact that Paul, in all of his writings, in everything he's written that we know of, never uses the word Christian. He never describes believers as Christians. In fact, The word Christian was likely a pejorative that was used uh, to demean Christians, meaning little Christ, back in 
uh, the first century. He never uses that, that term. It's used in scripture, but he never uses it. He uses one phrase almost everywhere. It's either explicit or implicit in his writings, and that phrase is in Christ. For example, in our book that we're going through right now, chapter 1, verse 2, he says, the saints and faithful brothers in Christ Jesus. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, we're found in Christ, the Son, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. In verse 22, we are reconciled in the body of Christ by his death. And in verse 28 of chapter 1, Paul says the purpose of his ministry is to present everyone mature in Christ. In chapter 2, it continues with this idea of fullness and wisdom, uh, fullness of wisdom and knowledge being found, guess where? In Christ. The Apostle Paul is all about this concept of being in Christ. And so before we go any further through Colossians, what I want to do is just take one Sunday, and I want to get our, our minds in, in gear to ask the question, how are we united with Christ? What has to happen for this to take place? What did God do on his end to cause a broken sinner like me to be found in his son, his perfect son? And so what does it mean to live our lives out in Christ is going to be the natural sort of progression of that. So let's read these two verses, Colossians 2, 6 through 7, and we'll read those verses with this, these questions in mind. It begins like this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. <laughs> so there's nothing, there is nothing we could talk about today that is more significant in human experience than this concept of being in Christ. There's nothing more essential in the Christian life than being found in Christ Jesus, and it is the very reason for human existence that we would be in Christ, grafted into Christ Jesus, which grants us access um, in Ephesians 1 to every spiritual blessing. And at the beginning of this passage, Paul stops his letter to the Colossians and says one word. He says, therefore. Now, when we see this word in the text, we need to recognize it's not a throwaway word. What he's saying is that this word, therefore, it has meaning. What he's saying is that given everything that we've seen so far in the first 34, 35 verses of this book, this, what I'm about to tell you, is how we should respond to that reality. And he issues a command. He says, walk in Christ. And what he's describing here, obviously, isn't the physical act of walking what he's talking about here is how we live our lives. How we walk in the massive realities that he spent just the beginning of this book unpacking and explaining. How do we respond, for example, to the magnificence of the Son that we saw in the Christ hymn when we spent five or six weeks going through that text? Or how do we respond to God's great act of reconciliation through the blood of the cross? How do we respond to that? How do we respond to the fact that every single dimension of wisdom and knowledge that we can even conceive of is found nowhere but in Christ Jesus? 
Paul's answer to how we respond to those realities is that we must walk in Christ. And he expands this command to walk in Christ by saying, this walking involves being rooted in Christ Jesus and being built up in Christ Jesus, which is interesting language. We'll get to why he uses that language next week. But we know that this isn't about locomotive skills. This isn't about your ability to move from one side of the room to the next. That's not the kind of walking that he's talking about here. He is talking about our way of life as Christians. This is how those who are in Christ, those who are found in Christ, should live. So how is that? Well, Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you receive Jesus, walk in him. What does this mean? Well, at the very least, it means that there's something about how we first came to receive Jesus that informs how we live in him day to day. <clears throat> how we walk in him is like how we receive him. So our receiving of him defines what our position with him is in our union with him. How do we receive Christ? How, do we, how did you first receive Christ is the, is the question that Paul's rhetorically asking here. And John 1, 11 through 12 tells us this. When talking about Jesus, John says this, says that, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That was their response to Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive Jesus is to believe Jesus, to trust in Jesus. And what Paul is talking about in Colossians 2 verses 6 through 7 is exactly this. All who believed in his name, according to John 1, in Christ, are in Christ Jesus. They are the ones who become children of the living God. And he's saying that as you received him in this way, as you believed in him, that's how you walk in him. You were grafted into Christ through this concept of faith, and that's how we walk in him. We walk by faith. So something we just need to recognize right at the start here is that living your life as a Christian isn't done differently than how you first believed. There's not a difference here. So when Paul says, as you received him, so walk in him, what he's saying here is that your life in Christ isn't lived out in a way that's different from the way that you came to know him. And when you came to know him, you heard the gospel preached or communicated to you somehow, and you believed it. You trusted it. You recognized that you were unable to save yourself, and you entrusted yourself to a Savior able to save you. And Paul spends the rest of this passage explaining what that means. Look at Colossians 2, verse 7. He says that walking in Christ is being rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul is, what he's doing right here is, he is setting before us the heartbeat of the Christian life. A life that is rooted in Christ Jesus. A life that is built up in Christ Jesus. So what does this mean? At a, a very fundamental level, it means that to the Christian, Jesus Christ is everything. 
He's everything. A Christian's life is a life that trusts in Jesus alone, a life of complete reliance on him, on Jesus Christ, for every single thing. This is what it means to walk in Christ, and this is what it means to be established in the faith. Now, what I just said is challenging, because for a lot of us, I would say all of us at different times, what I just described doesn't feel like the steady state of our lives. It doesn't feel real to us in a consistent basis. Um, You might even say, I don't rely on Jesus alone. A lot of times I rely on myself. Or he isn't everything to me at all times. Sometimes I like X or Y, and that kind of overrides my love for him. Does this mean my faith is broken? Does this mean that I'm not actually trusting in Christ Jesus? Does this mean that I'm not a Christian? I'm not in Christ. We're going to, this is a real concern, this is a legitimate concern, and we're going to answer this question in a few minutes, so hang in there. What I want to do first before we get to that point is I want to engage the nature of saving faith. What is saving faith fundamentally? We've talked about this before. Faith is very difficult to define because there's a lot of unhelpful ways we can understand it or think about faith that are wrong, that'll take us off the beaten path. Some of the things we've said in the past were faith isn't blind. Faith isn't blind. Uh, Faith is not just a shot in the dark and hoping that it's going to be the right landing that we're going to make. According to Hebrews 11.1, which is the clearest definition in Scripture, it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. It is the assurance of something that is hoped for. It's not hope. Faith and hope are not the same thing. Faith is the anchor into the hope that we have, and it's a conviction of something that is not seen, and that means that it's not an act of the will. A conviction is not an act of the will. Remember the text in John 1? A faith is receiving Christ Jesus. It isn't something you will into being. It is a response from the depth of your heart. It's your desire. And well, here's an example. No one receives Christ begrudgingly. No one says, you know what? I got all the evidence here. I think this is, this is the right path to take. I don't like it, but I'm going to do it anyways. That's not how you receive Christ. That's not true faith. You receive him because when you see him in the gospel, he is supremely wonderful as Lord, and he's supremely wonderful as Savior. Your delight in him isn't something that you conjure up or manufacture. It's something that happens when you see the glory of who he is, and it's, your dis- it's a disposition of your soul. You receive Christ because not receiving him is undesirable. Does that make sense? So that's the conviction part. Now, I think we sometimes default into thinking that faith is an act of the will because the Bible commands it. The Bible commands that we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Like it's something that we have to muster up or create on our own, but that's not faith biblically. Uh, And there are tons of things, take this for example, that are commanded in Scripture that willpower, sheer willpower, cannot produce. For example, when Paul says in Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord, again I said, rejoice, you guys know this, 
Um, he's not commanding that we just simply say a prayer, a praise of, or say a praise to God or rejoice vocally, and that's it. He desires that our hearts would be in alignment with it. He's looking for us to have a sincere conviction that this Lord that he's telling us to rejoice in is worthy of rejoicing in. And that's not an act of the will. That's a posture of the heart. And it only happens by the grace of God, by our eyes and our heart being supernaturally opened to the worthiness of this Lord that we're to rejoice in. It's the same thing with faith. It's a receiving and trusting in God and his promises, not because it's just a shot in the dark, and I hope it's, I hope it's right. I hope Christianity works out for me in the end. But because somewhere deep down inside our soul, we know that it's true. In a place that we can't clearly define for us, it's, there's a realness to it. And in a way, it's more real than anything this world can even offer. And sometimes we feel that. We're sensitive to that fact. And faith is not just knowing that God is real either, like some sort of intellectual fact or intellectual proposition. Faith is the kind of knowing that is deeply relational with an affection and a joy for it. So I know, for example, that I love my wife. I know that I love Rachel. Um, and I know that I adore her, actually. And I will always adore her. And I also know that if I had to, I would die for her in a heartbeat. I know that. Now, how do I know that? Because I have a list of scientific postulations or facts that tell me, oh, you love your wife in this way? Or is it because I've been evaluated by people and they're like, yeah, you love your wife in this way. This is how you should love her. No, I know it because there's something deep in my soul that tells me this is how I feel about her. Guaranteed. I have no doubts about it. It's a conviction of something that is unseen. You can't see my love for her um, outside of actions. And so that invisible love that you see there is a conviction that comes from the deepest part of me. That's the nature of saving faith. That's what saving faith looks like. And this is the faith that Paul says that we are to be established in once we've been united with Christ. For those in Christ, it isn't about accomplishing something out here. It isn't about doing something out here. It is about remaining in something that God has already granted us and given us. It's about laying your anchor deep into the reality of Christ Jesus and saying, I will not be moved. I will not be moved from this position. I am established in this. Um, think about some of the texts we've read already in Colossians as we made our way through this book. For example, Colossians 1, through 23 says this. And this will give us an understanding of how faith works for those in Christ. It says, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If... Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Paul is telling us to continue in the faith. And he's using words like stable and steadfast. He's telling the Colossians, don't shift from the gospel. It's not about earning anything, but it's about continuing to trust in Christ. Remain anchored in the gospel. Colossians 2, 5, for example, says this. This is the text immediately before the passage we just read, or we read earlier. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing, this is Paul saying it to the Colossian church, to see 
your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul wants to see the firmness of their faith in Christ Jesus. He's not interested in an act of faith, but rather he wants them to remain locked into and anchored with the very faith that God has already given them, which is why we have words like rooted to describe how we walk in Christ. Or a phrase like established in the faith. This is a picture of being unmoved. It's, it's a picture of an objective reality that we are remaining in. Paul wants their faith, he desires their faith to be an unbreakable chain into Jesus. He wants their faith to be invincible. And the best example in Scripture of this kind of faith is actually found in one man, a man named Abraham, the man that Paul resorts to almost every single time he wants to talk about faith. He talks about this dude. So please turn with me, if you've got your Bibles, to Romans 4. I want to take a quick look about how faith worked in Abraham's life. As you turn there, (laughs) Abraham just for context, was a man of his time. He was not unusual by any stretch of the imagination. According to Joshua 24, when God found him, he was an idolater. He was a moon worshiper. He worshiped other gods, and that's what his family had been doing every single generation until something interrupted their idolatry. And Abraham didn't invite it. We have no indication that he was seeking it out. God came for him. And it says in Joshua 24, 3, that God took him and led him into the land. And God also makes promises to Abraham, which is where the point of our text is going to go to. One of those promises was very simple. Abraham, Though you are old in age, and though your wife is beyond the age of being able to bear children, you will be the father of many nations. This is the promise that God makes him. You will be the father of many nations. And it says that Abraham believed and trusted in God that he would make good on his promise. Listen to Romans 4 verse 17. Paul says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, in whom Abraham believed, this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. This was Abraham's conviction. God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. And then he says, so shall your offspring be as many as the stars are in heaven, as many as the sand is on the seashore. And Abraham's response to these outrageous, ridiculous promises were, I believe you. I believe you. I trust you. And this wasn't based on all of the facts. 
It was based on one fact. I know this God who promised me this. He can give life to anything that is dead. And he can even call into existence things that do not exist. This is the kind of God I am dealing with. So when he promises me anything, that reality makes all the difference. And it says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. His faith was an anchor into the hope that God had promised him. And he said, I trust this God. I trust him. He will deliver on this promise. I know it. But that wasn't easy for him because look at what was stacked against him. All the chips were stacked against Abraham day one. Look at verse 19 in Romans 4. It says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which Paul defines as was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham was about 100 years old Paul defines that as as good as dead. He might as well have been dead. Which is Paul's way of saying, if God can produce a single human out of this man, it is nothing short of a miracle. Nothing short of a miracle. And if that was enough, Sarah is unable to conceive a child because of her age. The ESV renders this as barrenness of her womb. But the actual word there isn't barrenness. The actual word is deadness. Paul is making it clear that Abraham did not cling to physical evidence at all. He did not cling to anything that his physical eyes could see when he believed. He clung to something else. And what that is, the next verse gives us a clue. Verse 20 through 21 says, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Despite mountains of evidence otherwise, Abraham's conviction overruled those mountains. Rather than unbelief forcing him away from trusting God's promises, He pressed even deeper. And it says, as he gave glory to God, that's when his faith grew strong. The strength of his faith was connected to the glory of God, to what he saw and enjoyed in this God. And so this is the eyes of his heart. This isn't his physical eyes. Despite external circumstances like his body and his wife's body, the biology and the the medical realities that are there, despite that, he clung to this God in faith. His God's ability to accomplish what he had promised and his God's character to be faithful to do it. He said, that's enough for me to be fully convinced. I am fully convinced my God can do this. And guess what? He will do it. Now back to what we said earlier. This is not the steady state of Christians. This is not the steady state of, I would say, most Christians most of the time. Our faith in this life is an alloyed faith. What that means is that it is mired with unbelief. It is mired with doubt and it is connected to and woven into uncertainty. 
Right now, as we live and as we move throughout this world, we look into a mirror dimly. That's part of the nature of faith. And if you read through Genesis, you see that Abraham was just like this. There were many times that he doubted God. He had the same pedigree, the same species of faith that we have. That doesn't mean that there isn't a kind of certainty that does grip our hearts. There absolutely is a certainty that grips our hearts at times. In fact, the Bible refers to faith as knowing often. And in fact, um, at times, that knowing is almost unshakable and overwhelmingly powerful. Like we know at the deepest part of us, that's true. But the steady state of Christians is often mired in, in doubt. It can feel weak at times. But this fact isn't a ticket for us to just check out and say, my faith is always going to be like this. It's always going to be weak. It's always going to be mired in doubt. No, true and saving faith always presses forward, presses deeper and fights for certainty. That's the nature of saving faith. We can see it in Abraham's story. He grew strong in faith as he did what? As he, not as he contemplated uh, how uncertain he was, or not as he considered all the facts and did all the math and said it's impossible for this to happen. They were all set against him. He grew strong in his faith as he reminded himself how glorious and wonderful this God who made the promise was. How completely able God was to do anything he wanted anything he wanted. How faithful this God's character was to fulfill his promises. And then that, and that alone was what strengthened his faith. And it eventually became like iron, which is why Paul ends Colossians 2, 6 through 7 by saying, part of us walking in Christ, part of us being rooted in Christ, part of us being built up in Christ is us abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving is part of what it means to be in Christ. What does Paul mean by that? Abounding in thanksgiving is part of what we do when we're in Christ. Thanksgiving is when we consider all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's when we consider everything that we get from him every millisecond of our lives. It's when we consider all that he has promised in his word to us and delivered in spades. This is what strengthens our faith. Joyful gratitude in God's merciful and gracious provisions. Thanksgiving is worship. It's praising God for what he's done. Thanksgiving is giving glory to God, which is what Abraham did. And it's exactly what Paul says strengthened his faith. Paul says we are to abound in thanksgiving. That's part of what it means to be in Christ. Listen to Paul describe this in Philippians 3. Paul says of himself after saying, there's nothing greater than knowing Christ Jesus, than believing and trusting in him, than him being my righteousness and guaranteeing my resurrection. Then he says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why do you do that, Paul? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I'm not perfect. I am not complete yet. And he's talking about his walk in Christ, his faith in Christ Jesus. It hasn't reached the fullness of it that it will be in the resurrection when he sees Jesus face to face. But what does he do? Does he check out? Does he just say it's over? I'm never going to be complete? He presses on to make it his own. And he does that for one reason alone. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I look, Paul says, not at my past, not at my own track record, not what I bring to the table. I look at what Christ has done on the cross. Because on that cross, Christ did something for me. He made me his own. He made me his own. Why do I believe him? Why do I desire to know him? Why am I found in Christ Jesus? Not because of something I did. Not because I made him my own. Because he made me his own. I am his forever. And I need, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this every day. Because my sin and my guilt tell me another story. I did nothing, we did nothing to deserve his favor. But in those words, he made me his own. He pours out lavishly on us infinite favor. We technically deserved abandonment and alienation from God because we abandoned God. We rebelled against him. But in Christ Jesus, God came to rescue us. And not only that, not only rescue us, not only take us and bring us into safety, but he owns us. He makes us his own. He doesn't say, listen, you need to do X first and then you're mine. You need to do Y first and then I'll have you. He looks at you in your fallenness, in your brokenness, in your sin, and he says, I want you. I want you as my own, and I will make you mine even if it costs me my life. I will have you. That's the Savior we have in Christ Jesus. And we need to be reminded that this isn't us that made the first move. He took us like he took Abraham. Took us and overwhelmed us by his grace so that when we look at Christ Jesus now, We desire him, we love him, we want him, and we will walk in him the rest of our days because we are his forever. And as we acknowledge him and his work, like Abraham, as we think about all that he's done for us and contemplate how wonderful he has been in our lives, we glorify him, we exalt him, and we find ourselves in those moments falling more in love with him. We find ourselves in those moments trusting him more. It's not an accumulation of facts that pushes us over the edge. It's an embracing of who he really is that causes us to love him and trust him more. And we find ourselves delighting in him more and wanting to spend more time with him. And in fact, we find ourselves desperate to do so. (laughs) We're going to worship here uh, in song and communion in just a few moments. For those who are in Christ, I want you to take 
this time, take this opportunity as you worship to think about those words. Think about the words, he has made me his own. I belong to him. And think about like your face in his mind. Don't depersonalize the gospel. Think about your name on his lips. He has made me his own. And he is saying to us that very thing. Speak those words into your heart. Christ Jesus has made me his own. I am his, therefore he is mine forever. I want to close with one final passage from um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. This passage tells us the final chapter, the final page of the final chapter of our walk in faith with Christ. It gives us the preface of eternity. Listen to the words that Paul says here. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And then he compares that analogy to what we'll experience on the last day. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Right now, we see Christ dimly. He is obscured by a thousand things in our lives right now. But one day, I promise you, you will see him face to face. It won't be a matter of faith anymore. He will be standing before you. And in that moment, faith will not be knowing in part. We will know him in full even as we were known by him in full. Face to face with the one who made us his own. Let's pray. Father God, we talk about things that are unimaginably massive and far beyond our wildest dreams and ability to contemplate. And we, we do this, Father, in a posture of humility because we recognize that, that there's no way we can understand some of these things fully. They're just so big and so massive. Your thoughts are so high above us. But what we need right now, Father, is we need you as we worship, Father, and as we spend time um, recognizing the sacrifice of Christ Jesus on that tree and partaking in the elements, Father, in remembrance of that, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the realities that we've talked about today. We can't do it on our own. We need your spirit to come and to take these truths and to press them into our souls in such a way that they are never forgotten. Help us know Christ Jesus. Help us glorify God the Father for all that he's done in Christ Jesus for us. Help us magnify his name and thereby strengthen our faith so our faith isn't weak and mired in unbelief, but our faith is iron and locked into the only one who can save us. 
pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.